This episode of the Tech Money Podcast is sponsored by Capital Area Tax Consultants. Capital Area Tax Consultants is a virtual tax and accounting firm that specializes in helping high net worth individuals navigate the complexities of the tax code. While our team of tax pros are well-versed in all things tax, our areas of expertise include rental real estate and equity compensation. With our comprehensive tax planning services, our one goal is to help clients maximize savings and minimize their tax liability each year. At Capital Area Tax Consultants, we believe in pricing transparency and flat fees. Before engaging with us, you'll receive an upfront quote in black and white with a description of any services to be performed. This way, there are no hidden surprises. So don't wait. Reach out to us today to experience a better approach to taxes at www.capgllc.com. Again, that web address is www.capgllc.com. Welcome to the Tech Money Podcast, where the worlds of technology and personal finance collide. Hosted by certified financial planner, speaker, blogger, and self-proclaimed personal finance nerd, Malcolm Etheridge. Each episode aims to make you just a little bit smarter about your money, all from the perspective of the tech professional. Without further delay, here's your host. Hey there, listeners. Malcolm here. And on today's episode, we're talking about personal finance. More specifically, we're talking about recent trends in personal finance that have been either created or changed by the COVID-19 pandemic over the past year and a half. We've heard plenty about the ways in which people stuck at home have turned to the stock market as a means of entertainment and, in some cases, to amass a small fortune, seemingly overnight. We even did an episode on the subject earlier this year where I interviewed the Motley Fool's Chris Hill about the Wall Street bets crowd and the so-called meme traders. If you hadn't heard it yet, go ahead and check it out. But what we don't see enough focus on is the average person managing the rest of their balance sheet, their savings account, their student loans, the inequities in the labor market and the K-shaped recovery, government stimulus, childcare costs, the housing market, et cetera, et cetera. You get the picture. So I decided to call up somebody I know who has a reason to keep up with what's happening in the broader personal finance landscape and just have a conversation. Liz Weston is a personal finance expert and staff writer for Nerd Wallet. She's also the author of five books about money and has appeared on CNBC, Fox Business, NBC Nightly News, and the Today Show, to name a few. And her columns are carried by the Associated Press and the LA Times. Liz writes about all things personal finance for a living, from credit scores to taxes to Medicare. She's the co-host of Nerd Wallet's Smart Money podcast, and she's also a certified financial planner. So I feel like she has some very good insight into the minds of the average American when it comes to their money concerns. So with that brief introduction, welcome Liz Weston to the Tech Money Podcast. Hey, Malcolm, it's good to be here. Yeah, I appreciate you making the time to to come on and do this. This should be fun. So to yeah. get us started, I breezed through your resume pretty quickly there in my intro. <laughs> what else should I have mentioned on the record here? Let's see. I am the mother of a recent high school graduate who's heading off to college in the fall, which is very exciting. Also a wife of an artist, so I understand a bit about the artistic and creative mind. And I'm also the the mom to a codependent golden retriever and a very needy <laughs> cat. So that, that's pretty much it. So a lot of people calling you throughout the day as you're trying to hit these deadlines is what I heard. <laughs> Everybody needs something. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so I mentioned in my intro that you are a fellow CFP, Certified Financial Planner. 
But to my knowledge, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, I'm sure you aren't actually practicing or working with clients one on one. What made you decide to put yourself through all that schooling and studying and dare I say torture um, (laughs) to get the CFP? Well, of course, I had no idea what I was getting myself in for. That's the first <laughs> part of it. And then I'm incredibly stubborn. So once I realized how much I was in for, I just had to, to push through. But honestly, I felt like I needed to have a higher level of education and understanding to really give people good advice. Hmm. And about halfway through the program, we were asked, what are you going to do with this? And most of the people who were getting the CFP wanted to become financial planners. And mm-hmm. I realized that I hate to be ignored to my face. So when I'm out there giving advice to everybody, if you don't take my advice, I will never know. But I know you guys dealing with clients are constantly telling people the right thing to do and then having have them turn around and do exactly the wrong thing. I think that would drive me out of my mind. So my that is very insightful. <laughs> that that I, I won't even say very much more than that. That is just very <laughs> insightful, and that's interesting. That was your take. I, yeah, my CFP books still haunt me sitting on the bookshelf in my office, and so I can't imagine studying that hard for fun. So I'm glad that you told me it really was not a fun. You you did it out of spite, which is <laughs> amazingly hilarious to me. Well, and when I did it, you journalists couldn't get the mark. You actually had to Mm -hmm. practice for at least three years. And it was only more recently in the last few years, they decided to give us credit for experience credit for all the writing that we did. So you'll notice there's Mm -hmm. a lot more journalist CFPs now than there used to be. But when I took all those classes, I didn't even have to bother with the test. So I just moved on. I said I'd been through the courses, but I didn't use Mm -hmm. the mark. When I was ready, when they decided to give us this mark and I had to go back and study all that stuff again and do a boot camp and do a review, I almost killed myself. I'm not, <laughs> I, I, I shouldn't say it that way, but I mean, the, the workload was killing. And yeah. I was so glad that I passed because my husband said flat out, if you have to take that test again, we're moving out. We are not going to go through <laughs> that again. <laughs> so for context, I actually studied for my CFP at the same time my wife and I were planning a wedding. Oh, and so Lord. you can imagine. I, I, <laughs> Malcolm. I almost got murdered a couple of times too. So I can only imagine like what it must've been like um, in your house. Anyway, I don't, yeah. (laughs) So on a semi-related note, like on your podcast, you guys answer listener questions, get feedback and and that such from the general public. What are some of the most popular topics you're hearing people wanting to ask about right now? Well, it is a bit all over the map, but we do get a lot of interest in cryptocurrency. People want to know a lot about Mm. that, but they also want to know the basics, how to save money, how to set up my finances so that I'm covering my bills and paying off my debt and getting ahead a little bit. So it might be prosaic or basic, but that's the kind of stuff that people need to hear about. So we cover that as well. Yeah, I think it can't be said enough because everybody consumes information from everywhere else like like god knows how many outlets there are at this point talking to people about their money and people are still asking the same or very similar questions at this point which means that it's topics that still need to be covered you know seemingly ad nauseum yeah one more time just because people are still asking those same very basic questions so yeah and malcolm a lot of people are trying to yeah a lot of people are also trying to buy houses now. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. home buying is a big deal with our listenership in a normal market. With this market, people are just pulling their hair out. So I think they need a lot more guidance and reassurance. And And I think you're dealing with that as well right now, right? 
As we record this podcast, ironically, I have two clients that are sitting at the closing table getting mortgages done. And so I can only imagine, and these are people of means who have probably the easiest path to the closing table out of all of America, if they can Mm -hmm. afford to hire a financial planner and and pay somebody like me to help them keep it all under, under control. They're probably people of pretty good means with pretty good credit scores and and the, the numbers don't matter so much as like having a good experience. And they're even uh, panicking a little bit and, and having some heartburn. So I can only imagine what it's like for the rest of America that you're getting into these bidding wars on what we would have considered a, a fixer upper or even possibly a teardown two years ago. And now all of a sudden, because everybody wants to own a home seemingly at the exact same point where we're experiencing this like just craziness. So yeah. I don't, I don't envy anybody who's, who's going through it right now. I did hear from some people early on in the pandemic that they thought, okay, housing prices are going to crash and I'm going to swoop mm-hmm. in. And exactly the opposite happened. People just didn't put their houses on the market and the, the demand built up. And if I, if it were me, I definitely would wait. I think things are going to be calming down pretty soon, getting more back to normal. But when people want a house, they want a house. So sometimes that advice just does not compute. So I... I I was in that camp. I thought, you know, looking at what happened in 2008, obviously now we know they're two completely separate crises that were driven by two completely separate things. And so Mm -hmm. the government's response and our response as people was completely different. But going into it, I was in the camp that said, oh, the housing market's going to crumble and there's going to be people picking up five and six houses for pennies on the dollar at a time. And it's going to be 08 all over again. People are going to turn into renters because seven, 10 year window before you can go buy a house again and blah, blah, blah blah, blah. And Uh the doomsday scenario that I had painted in my mind was the complete opposite to your point of what we, what we're dealing with. So yeah, um, I think it's very positive that at least the people who are in their homes and we thought would be displaced, haven't been to the rate that happened in 08. But I also think to the other extreme, it's not great that for people who were in the middle of the market and wanted to be able to buy, like you're still being priced out, but I, I digress, but to, to, <laughs> for a different topic though, of things that are happening, the phenomenon that's happening. I read a piece recently that you wrote about the enhanced child tax credit. Why wow. should parents be paying close attention to whatever happens with that? I think that's really big. This story was prompted by one of my editors who basically called this potentially life-changing money. And mm-hmm. I was thinking, what? But he has a really good point. So if you don't know what the child tax credit is, it's been around for a long time. And mm-hmm. a lot of parents take advantage of this when they file their taxes every year. What happened was that Congress expanded it and made it refundable, which means even if you don't owe taxes, you can get this tax credit. But the big change is that they are going to be sending most families in the country with kids under 18 actual checks every month for up to $300 per child. And that's meant to be basically half of your credit and then you'll get the other half when you file your tax return. So these checks coming in give people a real opportunity. Now, some people, they're just gonna need that money to pay the rent, keep food on the table. But for the families that have a little more means, this could be the opportunity to finally get that emergency fund going or finally start saving for their kids' college educations. So. It really can be life-changing money. It can get people out of the paycheck to paycheck rut 
and or get them on the way to maybe saving more for their own retirements or saving for their kids' educations, which is huge. I've also been reading that $300 a month could be the difference in some cases for people being able to pay for childcare to go to work themselves or not. And so we hear the statistics about how many women, how many moms have been displaced from the labor market because unfortunately nine times out of 10 or nine times out of nine, whatever the math actually is, mm -hmm. when it comes down to it, moms are the ones that end up staying home with the kids. And for folks who are close enough to the wire, that $300 could make the difference in them being able to, to go to work or not. But I hear that those checks will only last from July to December. I wonder what the likelihood yeah. is that they actually extend this program into 2022 and, and beyond. It's going to be really interesting. I think it'll be super popular because people like getting money. And <laughs> this is something that helps parents and parents for all the emphasis on how important having families is and having kids is parents don't get a lot of support in a lot of ways. So mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I don't know. I think this could get extended. I wouldn't count on it, obviously, if you're getting these checks, but it might be something that we see going forward. I would like to add one thing about the child tax credit, and I think this applies to planning in general, is mm -hmm. if you have a source of income coming in, if you have new money coming in from whatever source, it's so important to make a plan for it because that increases the chances that you will actually do what you want with the money. Hmm. And it won't just get peddled away. And I'm sure, Malcolm, you've seen this with people who get a windfall, whether it's an inheritance or a, an insurance settlement, whatever it is, they get the windfall, they feel rich for a while, they wind yeah. up spending the same money two or three times, and they run through it. I think, I don't, I can't remember where this statistic comes from, but there's one statistic that sticks in my mind, which is that a lot of inheritances are spent within 18 months. So this is obviously a much smaller pool of money, but the same thing could happen if you don't have a plan. So before the money actually hits your bank account, I think it's really a good idea to sit down and go, okay, what do I want to happen to this money? Where would this money do the most good for our family? I love that. And, you know, th there's two sides of it. Like you said, there's people who don't need the money, right? They'll get the money mm -hmm. because they qualify for it, but they don't technically need that money. And so figuring out a way that you're going to apply an additional $300 a month for six months could be, to your point, throwing it into your kid's 529 college savings plan, right? And that still mm -hmm. may not sound like a lot, right? The math on that says that's about $1,800, right? And you go, eh, what am I going to do with $1,800? But I recently read something that said that families that have even just $500 saved for their kid's college education to this point, like regardless of how old the kid is, mm -hmm. that kid is so much more likely to actually attend and graduate from college than the families yes. that don't actually put any money away at all. And so yes. if you just throw that $300 a month into your kid's college savings plan, there you go. You just got a pretty yep. significant start on saving for kid to go to college and made it more likely that they'll actually attend and graduate. So I'm with you. I think it's a great idea to, to put pen to paper and really figure out what you'll do with the 300 bucks so that you don't just order some meals that you wouldn't normally order because normally you think they cost too much from the place that you order yeah. takeout from or you go to dinner yep. at, or whatever it actually to your point so anyway well but we, so i we all um, know how easy it is for money to just dribble through your fingers 
which is why I, to your point, figure out where it's going to go before it comes so that it doesn't mm-hmm. even cross my face or sit in my regular checking account so that I don't even bother to think about like, oh, there's some additional dollars there that I can apply to X or yeah. we have quote unquote found money in our hands. Things tend to look not as expensive as they did before. And that's what I want to avoid. And so having a place for that money to land before it ever comes to your point is paramount in making sure that one, you do the thing you wanted to do with it in the first place, but two, it just doesn't get squandered being a part of everything else. Well, you just illustrated two of our cognitive biases, two of the ways Mm -hmm. that our brains are wired funny. And one is that we treat money from different sources differently. Mm-hmm. We mm-hmm. think of our, the money that we earn as, oh, that's our hard-earned money. We might be more careful with that. When we get a windfall, we think, wee, free money. Money is money. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't matter where it comes from, but we have this bias. But what you do and what I do of making sure money doesn't hit our checking account so it's out of sight, out of mind, that's kind of taking advantage of a cognitive bias. If I don't see it, it doesn't exist. And yeah. that really helps use our the funny way that our brains are wired to our advantage rather than you know having it take advantage of us. So I'm going to take us in a different behavioral finance direction for a second, one that's not as exciting to talk about, but I think it's certainly (laughs) important. And so I thought it was interesting that you guys were working on this, which is that NerdWallet ran a survey toward the end of last year asking how many people had applied for and purchased life insurance since the pandemic took over our lives. And I think Mm -hmm. it said that term insurance sales were up about 10% through that time period, which I thought was interesting. Do you think people's recent interest in making sure that they've properly protected themselves financially through life insurance will persist through the pandemic? Or have you guys already run a new survey and found out that it's in fact no longer a priority since the pandemic's somewhat in the rear view? Well, we haven't, to my knowledge, we haven't done the next survey yet. So Mm -hmm. I I don't know what we'll find out, but I live in California where Mm -hmm. nine out of 10 homeowners do not have earthquake insurance. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's like when an earthquake happens, suddenly people run out and more people buy it. Still not enough, but a bunch of people do. And then over time, it just fades away. So we do, speaking of cognitive biases, biases, whatever, however you say that, we do tend to overemphasize what's happened the most recently. So a pandemic comes into our lives, it changes everything. We start thinking about our mortality. If we weren't in the habit of doing that already, we we take action or think we're gonna take action. When the threat fades, we go back to our regular lives. So I think, again, this is why you exist, this is why I exist, to remind people that these needs are there, whether you're aware of them or not. If you have people who are financially dependent on you, you need life insurance. And there's a lot of different ways to get it, but it's something that you actually need. What you were referring to is what's called recency bias. And I appreciate yes. you giving me an opportunity to flex my nerdy econ muscles in these <laughs> phrases and terms in this conversation that I normally wouldn't use because my daughter and my wife would roll their eyes at me and look the other way. So thank you so much for... for it's uh, my pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> but you also wrote an article recently about how to make sure... You're, you don't overpay for life insurance, which is related, but a little bit different direction. Is that a common occurrence people are concerned about? Yeah, it seems like we're either in one camp or the other, either people are ignoring the need for life insurance entirely, or the wrong people are buying the wrong products. Because Hmm. as you know, life insurance typically is sold. It's not bought. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. 
term insurance is not typically sold. If your life insurance guy is trying to sell you something, it's going to be a much more expensive permanent life insurance policies. And those can sure. be great for the right people. Absolutely. But I keep hearing from people who have bought these policies who have no need for life insurance. And mm, that's got to be mm, the basis. Mm -hmm. Before you spend all this money on a permanent policy, you got to make sure you need life insurance to start with. And you got to make sure that you have enough. And the problem with the expensive policies is that people wind up getting way too little coverage. So that's a little bit of my hobby horse. It, it really irritates me when I see like a variable life insurance policy sold to somebody who's making $50,000 a year. It just makes me grind my teeth. What that also unfortunately does is make people mistrusting of the whole system. What yes. I've come across is because in the insurance industry, there's no regulation on who gets to call themselves a financial advisor or some other variation of that. And so unfortunately, yeah. you have folks in the insurance space that will call themselves financial advisors. People think that's who they're meeting with, although the person's affiliation with an insurance company means every pro for every problem you present, the solution is going to be some version of a life insurance policy, right? And so yes. I can it position to that person who makes $50,000 that this variable life insurance policy is going to be the thing that helps you retire the way you want to versus contributing to your company's 401k plan or contributing to an IRA yourself or whatever. Yeah. The conversation becomes, well, this is a tool too that's going to help you get to that thing instead of focusing on how do we replace the income that you bring into the house every day for the people who depend on you financially for the years that, you know, you're not here anymore. And yeah. I'm with you 100 percent. I actually wrote an article not too long ago called Life Insurance is Not a Financial Plan that sparks some uh -huh. hate mail that I, I, I <laughs> got a chuckle out of. But I take your point, though, that it, it just Unfortunately, it is sold way too often in, in places that it doesn't need to be at levels that it doesn't need to be, which then turns everybody off from the conversation of life insurance in general. So the people yeah. who really do need it and would benefit from having a 20 or 30 year term policy to cover themselves and their kids and whatever else, they never get it just because people are so turned off from the conversation. So I just thought that was interesting that you guys took the turn of, or I should say you specifically, you wrote the article, like how, you took the, the turn of, here's how to make sure you're not overpaying, but you still need to get it done. Yeah, exactly. And at least have the assessment to see if you're, this is something that you really need. And if somebody's selling you one of these policies and it seems like a good deal, run it past a fee-only financial planner. Run it past mm -hmm. somebody like Malcolm who could take a look at it and tell you, yeah, this is a good fit. Or maybe you haven't thought about all these other things that you should be doing first. Yeah. And I think that is the real issue is that a lot of the people selling life insurance have only been taught how to sell life insurance. They don't know what mm -hmm. else is out there. They're not comprehensive financial planners. So some of them really believe in their product, which is great. Some of them just like writing hate mail, I think. <laughs> but <so. laughs> That's just part of one of the financial planners I was talking to about this said something to the effect of, do these insurance guys think that we can't do math? Because they're making all these assumptions and they're making all these predictions about what's going to mm -hmm. happen with this policy. And it's like, you know, the math doesn't add up. Anyway, that's kind of a side issue to what we're talking about, which is simply if you are intrigued by one of these products, yeah. make sure you need it, make sure that it's the right product and get a second opinion on it. I think that's the, the basic rule of thumb for these things. A second rule of thumb, just to put a button on it, to your point about who whole life insurance is good for, it's a very, very, very slim 
percentage of the overall population, right? Almost yeah. always term insurance, some combination of term insurance with different maturity dates will get you where you need to be. Yeah, absolutely. So anyway, but on a, on a different note, this is now not about folks passing away too soon. This is more about us living a very long time. You have another article out that I really liked, which was about the eight and a half birthdays that impact your retirement. I thought that was really interesting. I, as a person who helps folks plan for retirement for a living, it never occurred to me to recognize it that way. Can you run through really quickly what, what those are and why they matter? I want to do a shout out to my colleague, Bev O'Shea, because she's the one that came up with that headline. Okay. My headline was, I think, nine birthdays that can affect your retirement. And she pointed out one of the birthdays was a half birthday. So that <laughs> I love her headline, the eight and a half. Yeah. So the first one is turning 50. And at that point, you can make those lovely catch-up contributions to your 401k mm -hmm. or your IRA or both. So that's an additional, let's see, for the 401k, it's an additional $6,500 this year. And so that means you can put up to $26,000 in a 401k. If you're lucky enough to be able to do that, those catch-up contributions can really amplify those contributions. For the IRA, yeah. it's another 1000 bucks. So that means you can put in up to 7000 which is pretty cool. The next one is turning 55. Mm -hmm. And this is the penalty. That's the point at which the penalty for withdrawing money from a 401k or 403b disappears if you're separated from service. So I kind of backed into that sentence, but normally you have to pay a penalty if you take out the money too early. But if you mm -hmm. lose your job when you're 55 or older, you're separated from service, then you can start tapping that 401k. You still have to pay the income taxes, but you don't have mm -hmm. to pay those, uh, the penalties. 10% then when you turn 50, tax. Yes, yes. And then when you turn 59 and a half, the penalties go away. Again, you still have to pay the income tax on most of your withdrawals, unless they're from a Roth. The next age is one I don't see get getting talked about a lot, but when you turn 60 mm -hmm. and you are a widow or widower, that is the earliest that you can begin Social Security survivor benefits. Those can be super helpful. That's yeah. normally. I mean, you can start earlier if you're disabled or if you're taking care of the deceased person's minor children. But mm -hmm. for most widows and widowers, age 60 is the start. And Social Security has kind of a interesting twist to it, which is with survivor benefits, that's one of the few benefits that you can start and then switch to another benefit. So you could start your survivor benefits and then switch to your own benefit later when it's maxed out. Mm -hmm. Again, lots of social security is incredibly complicated. I don't know how a program that benefits so many people could have gotten so complicated, but if you are thinking about applying, oh my gosh, please talk to a fee-only financial planner, a CFP <laughs> first, because this is this can be really tricky. Next age, turning 62, and that's the earliest you can begin Social Security retirement or spousal benefits. So we were mm -hmm. talking about survivor benefits. This is your own benefit or spousal benefits. Most people don't want to start that early, but that is as early as you can start. 65 is when you're old enough for Medicare. Somewhere between 66 and 67 is your full retirement age. That's where you get the, the they call it your full benefit. You actually can get more if you delay, but you, most people want to wait at least until their full retirement age to start. And then two more ages, turning 70. 
That's mm -hmm. if you delay your social security benefit, that's when it's maxed out. There's no point in delaying further. And then 72 is the age at which you start making required minimum withdrawals, typically from your retirement funds. So how did I do, Malcolm? Did I explain those correctly? You got them all in there as far as I know, which okay. again, I thought like this should, it, it, it might actually be, but this should be like on a chart that everyone above the age of like 50 sees all the time to remind them of these things as they come up, especially the social security part. Like, I don't know that enough gets explained to people. Even if you call the social security administration and you say, I'm 62 years old, I want to start my benefits. I don't know that they ever make you aware that you are taking 75% of what your benefit would be if you waited till 66 or 67. And not only are you taking a 25% hit, you're locking this in for the rest of your life. And yes. so I don't remember what the exact math on it, the exact statistics are uh, on it, but the majority of people who are on social security benefits as it stands right now, actually start their benefits at 62. And so I think maybe the social security administration could help us out a little bit by making people aware that if they waited just one more year, two more years, they would have a significantly higher benefit for the rest of their life than they do by taking it as early as they possibly can. So anyway, but you actually like, so you've written this article on those eight and a half birthdays. You actually write on retirement quite a bit. Have you noticed mm -hmm. any new trends or any changes to the way people are dealing with retirement over the last 18 ish months? Well, actually, there, there's been a trend for earlier retirements and later retirements, which is mm -hmm. really kind of interesting. When you were mentioning that people tend to take Social Security too early, we actually have noticed that there is a trend to take it a little bit later. So that's very, very awesome. positive. It's really great to hear. Yeah. But with the pandemic, we saw a lot of sudden retirements. Either people lost their job and couldn't mm -hmm. find another one, or they took a look at you know, how short life is mm -hmm. and just decide I'm, I'm going to go for it. On the other end, those fortunate enough to keep their jobs and, and that were able to work from home, I talked to a number of people who said, you know what, this is sustainable. I could keep mm -hmm. doing this for longer than I thought. I was thinking about checking out and, and giving in my notice, but I think I'm going to keep doing this for a while. So I think we're seeing trends on both ends, either accelerating retirement or being able to push it off. So that's that's kind of interesting how much we know that pandemic changed so much about our lives and our financial lives but mm -hmm. that was one trend that affected the over 60 folks or over 55 folks on the opposite side though we're talking about the effects of the pandemic on people's money right let's talk for a moment about money shame which is another topic you've written about mm. which i thought was interesting can you first you see you're already there <laughs> you're already <laughs> there can you first just define what that even means and then why it is seemingly on the rise right now yeah this was interesting a, a woman was had been writing about this after her brother committed suicide he was foreclosed on in the last recession and he'd had money problems for a very long time and he finally took his own life and so hmm. this woman did a deep dive into why this happens and to back up a little bit typically the concept of guilt is associated with I've done something wrong and mm -hmm, I feel guilty mm -hmm. about it. Shame is a different emotion. Shame is I am wrong. There's something wrong with me. And what we've seen is that a lot of times, external things with the economy, 
things happening with our money, we react to those with shame. Oh, I mm -hmm. should have known better. Oh, I shouldn't have done that. I was an idiot, yada, yada. And a lot of times it seems that men really internalize this stuff. If they hmm. have a financial setback, I'm not a good provider, I am not a good person. You know, it really gets internal. After I wrote that article, I received so many heartbreaking emails, most of them from men saying, hmm. I had this setback and I almost killed myself over it. Wow. Over money. And it was like, oh, it just it just took my breath away. And it's not, it's so unfortunate Everybody makes mistakes with money. Sometimes the consequences are way out of proportion to the yeah. mistake. We're not perfect. Like you were talking about how what you expected to happen during the pandemic. I thought mm -hmm. we were headed for another Great Depression. It didn't happen. <laughs> we can't predict what's coming next, but we think we can, and we kick ourselves when we predict wrong. We're just so hard on ourselves. And that's, I really glad I was able to write that and pe write that article and people were able to see it because I think it made people feel maybe a little less alone that it wasn't just them feeling these emotions. Do you ever you know deal with it in your, go ahead. Yeah, I find it interesting to that end. We read a lot about, or folks like you write a lot about how women aren't involved enough in the personal finance, in the uh, the financial decisions being made in the household. Men yes. control the purse strings. Women aren't uh, up to speed on what's happening in the house. And then the husband passes away and she's sort of at a loss. And you have a ton of financial planners out there that specialize in working with like divorcees and widowers for this reason, right? But one yes. of the things that I've observed in the time that I've been doing this, as you can imagine, the majority of the clients that we work with are couples. And the dynamics of the couple are such that the wife assumes that the husband should be good with money because he is a man. Mm. The husband yeah. assumes the wife is going to assume that he's good with money because he's a man. And so the responsibility of who is going to manage the money almost automatically without blinking gets handed to the husband without anybody even really having a conversation about it. It's almost the same, and I'm overgeneralizing here, and I hope people understand that I'm saying this in jest, but it's almost the same as the conversation of like, who's going to take out the trash and who's gonna cook dinner, right? Like there's certain <laughs> gender roles yep. that we just, we've been conditioned with that nobody fights it, right? Like it just yeah. is what it is, and that's the way things are done. And what I've found in working with couples when they come in and we start our conversation, and I just, I start the conversation by asking some variation of, talk to me about your experiences with money. The earliest experience you have all the way, way back when to being a kid and seeing your parents and your grandparents and whoever else had an influence on you and how they handled money. Talk to me about how that experience like shaped your attitude toward money and bring it all the way up to talk to me about how you guys handle money as a couple right now. So a dollar comes into the house, it goes where? Who's checking account? Is it a joint account, individual account? How you guys handle it? Blah, 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 right? And what I ultimately find from that those conversations is that a lot of times the guys are just as uncomfortable thinking about talking about and dealing with the money as the wife. They mm -hmm. just don't want to say it or feel like they can't say it because it's like, well, the expectation is that I should be good at this. And so yeah. they are just as relieved and in some cases even more relieved when they hire a professional to take it over because that means that they're no longer on the hook for making the right decision and no one's now looking at them saying you messed this up 
So if yeah. they're working with an advisor, they collectively can make the decision. You know what? That advisor is an idiot. We need to fire him or her. And they're the problem. <laughs> but you can't quite just look at your spouse. I guess you can. That's what divorce is. Like you look at your spouse yeah. and you say you're fired, right? It, it, <laughs> yeah. It's kind of the same thing, but this gives them the opportunity to have an unbiased third party in the equation that should know more than they do right between the two of them about how to do things and how to navigate and whatever. And I can't tell you how many times I can like hear and see in talking to the husband that they're relieved to not have the responsibility of having to, to look like they know what they're talking about or yeah. feel like it's all on me and, and I've got to carry this all on my shoulders and you know, that sort of thing. So it, it is really interesting like that. It creates such a pressure that nobody even necessarily comes out of their mouth and says, this is your responsibility. It's your fault if it goes wrong. We just assign that to ourselves. Yeah. Well, I've, I'm a big fan of Brene Brown. She writes a lot about vulnerability, uh, mm -hmm. researches a lot into that. And she talks about how men feel like, typically, traditionally, whatever, that they're supposed to be strong. They're supposed to know all this stuff. And women, yeah. unfortunately, back that up. We have these expectations. Yeah. Yeah. And once you examine that expectation and go, God, that's unfair. That's unfair to expect any one person to carry this big load. This is something we should be carrying together. Mm -hmm. That said, we flipped it in my household because I've married an artist and he's absolutely fabulous, but does not want to <laughs> deal with money. So it's like, yeah. that's on me. But we hired a financial planner yeah. because even though I do this 24 seven, I wanted somebody who could, if something happened to me, who could help him. And take over for him and what i discovered was it's also great to have that third party to bounce things off of mm -hmm. it reassures him when our financial planner says yes you can retire and this is how much money you can spend it's reassures me that i can talk different things over with her and make sure that we're on the right track it's just it's so great to have part of the burden on somebody else's shoulders so to yeah. me that's well worth paying for well, along that same line, prior to the pandemic, I was having conversations with small business owners who were looking for ways to help make their employees smarter, smarter about money. Right. They'd seen oh, the studies cool. yeah. they read the research on how unproductive employees are at work when they're strapped for cash. And that's the only thing on your mind. Then the pandemic yeah. hit and small businesses shifted their focus to survival mode. Right. Not their benefits offerings. Have you heard yes. much? Do you think we'll start to see companies looking to take on the challenge of helping their employees manage the financial health the same way they subsidize health insurance to help them manage their physical health, for example? Oh, absolutely. I think that trend is just going to continue. BlackRock, the big hedge fund, has been mm -hmm. putting a lot of money into various initiatives to help employers with this. One of the most intriguing ideas is having kind of a sidecar account to your 401k. So just mm -hmm. like your employer helps you save for retirement by offering a 401k, they could offer a, an opportunity to save for emergencies. So hmm. there's various forms of this that are being tested out at different companies, and they seem to be pretty popular. People like the idea of just having this money coming out of their paycheck and going yeah. somewhere that they can tap it without all the restrictions that are on 401ks or sure. other retirement plans. That money is just there for when you need it. It's such a simple response, really, when you think about it. It's just automatic deductions, but it makes a huge difference in our propensity to save if we have access to those. 
Yeah, because Americans are notoriously terrible at saving money. Like everything in our country <laughs> is set up to help us get better about spending money. It, yep. It's never really about helping us get better about saving money. So I, I really like that idea. That makes a ton of sense. We don't need a pandemic to come along to have our savings rate shoot through the roof. You know? Right. Okay, you can't spend money anywhere. So yeah, that, of course our savings rate rate went up and we started paying down credit card debt as we do in every recession. But just to have that money day in and day out coming out of your paycheck and being available for you, once you've experienced that, you know how powerful it is. But that it's mm -hmm. kind of a hard conversation to have with people if they haven't been in the habit of doing that. They have this idea that, okay, I've got to save a certain amount for emergencies and then something comes up the yeah. car needs a repair, the home needs a repair, the money's wiped out, and they feel like failures. It's like, no, it worked exactly the way it was supposed to. <laughs> this is rinse and repeat. You just have to keep right. doing it. And that automatic deduction is a great way to ensure that they're doing exactly that. Yeah, I like that one. I'll, I'll keep an eye out to see whether it you know grows legs or if Congress gets in the way or exactly what happens, because <laughs> both could happen in this country. So my last question for you as we get ready to close this out is what has surprised you the most over the last year and a half as you look at how people were behaving with their money before the pandemic through the recovery whatever that period actually was and now that we're at least on the back nine right of dealing with the virus's effects what do you what are you shocked the most by i'm not sure i'm shocked by people but i as i mentioned earlier i was really expecting a much worse recession than mm -hmm. we're actually having and uh, actually, the recession's over, so we're it's not even actually having. I expected a much worse, much longer-lasting recession, and I think the fact that Congress absolutely flooded the economy with money mm -hmm. made a huge difference. I didn't trust Congress to do the right thing, or the Fed, yeah. for that matter, and I was pleasantly surprised. The other thing is the... <sighs> I, I want to put this carefully, but... I was also surprised at how many people were reaching out to others in various mm. ways. I had gotten a little bit cynical about mm -hmm. people and what they would do. And I was seeing it everywhere. In my neighborhood, starting at the very beginning, somebody basically said, I will go to Trader Joe's for you and pick up groceries for older people mm. in the neighborhood who couldn't get yeah. out. Seeing people funding resources for the homeless talking just talking to other people what do you need i've got this extra money and we were talking about the child tax credits that are coming in and the the stimulus checks that have come in i heard from so many people who said i don't need this money where can i put it that would have the most impact yeah. and that just i don't know warmed my heart made me feel more positive about us as as <laughs> a society yeah, for sure. that so many people were focused on that saw that there were needs that saw that they could step up and, and do that so that, that was kind of pleasantly surprising interestingly enough we uh, do tax returns i mean tax return reviews for all of our clients and one uh -huh. of the things that i've noticed as, as we've been looking at our clients 2020 taxes is that a lot of people's charitable giving went up and oh, so that, to your nice. point, like humanity has kind of just shown that given the opportunity, a lot of people will rise to the occasion, although we would assume the opposite a lot of times. I'm in that cynic camp with you, so I get it. So <laughs> my true final question, I promise this is the last one, potentially has absolutely nothing to do with personal finance. So you can take a breath and sit back a little bit and 
let your shoulders go. But let's say that you never became a personal finance writer, right? Helping people get their money right and all that good stuff. But money wasn't a factor in your decision making at all. What do you think you'd be doing right now? Oh, wow. That's a great question. I earned my pilot's license when I lived in Alaska. Oh, wow. so I lived in Alaska okay. in my 20s. Yeah. And a lot of people do. That's, it's very common to have a pilot's license up there. And I loved, loved, loved doing it, but I wasn't able to do it enough to mm -hmm. stay safe. So I wound up stopping. I gave up my license. I wonder if I would have kept it up. And I don't know that I would become a, a like a airline pilot or anything mm -hmm. like that. But there's a aerobatic pilot out, out there called Patty Wagstaff. And I interviewed her early in her career, and I was just amazed at the things that she could do with an airplane. So hmm. <laughs> possibly I would be up there with her doing barrel rolls yeah. and things like that. <laughs> Interesting. And I didn't see that one coming. Well, so thanks, Liz. This was great. Like, absolutely great. And given our audience, I'm sure some of the folks listening to this may want to follow some of the other stuff that you're doing and keep up with your articles and such. Where can people find you if they want more Liz after this? Yeah, come to nerdwallet.com. That's the site that I write for. And we have a podcast uh, weekly called Smart Money. You can find that on wherever you get your podcasts. And then finally, mm -hmm. I have my own personal site, which is asklizweston.com. And that will have links to my columns when they come up, as well as other information that's, that's important for you to know. Awesome. Well, Eric with an A, why don't you go ahead and close this out, sir? Absolutely. And I do not want to cast any shade or shadows or anything else on any other episode that you've done malcolm but this was so fun to listen to you guys oh. <laughs> i could listen to this for another couple hours you guys going back and forth and great information a lot to think about and so liz thank you so much for being on the show of course malcolm you just get the best guests so thank you so much for bringing liz on the show this was tremendously fun for me i geeked out totally and of course our last thank you goes to you the listening audience thank you for tuning in and listening to the tech money podcast with malcolm etheridge if you have not subscribed to the podcast yet please click the subscribe now button below this way when malcolm comes out with a new podcast it'll show up directly on your listening device this makes it much easier to share these podcasts with your colleagues Again, thanks for listening today. For everyone at Tech Money, our hope is that this show helped make you just a little smarter about your money. This has been the Tech Money Podcast. For more information on today's topic, to review the show notes, or to catch up on past episodes, be sure to check out malcolmetheridge.com slash podcast. And if you have an idea for a show topic that you'd like us to cover, or you want to send us feedback, the web address again is malcolmetheridge.com. You can also find Malcolm across all social media platforms at Malcolm on Money. This episode was written and created by Malcolm Etheridge, with the production, the editing and sound controls powered by Crowdmouth. This has been a Malcolm on Money original. Thank you for listening. The information shared in this recording and by its guests represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not represent the views or opinions of the host. This content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. This content is not, nor is it intended to be a substitute for professional financial advice. It is always recommended that you seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your personal financial situation.
This episode of the Tech Money Podcast is sponsored by Capital Area Tax Consultants. Capital Area Tax Consultants is a virtual tax and accounting firm that specializes in helping high net worth individuals navigate the complexities of the tax code. With our comprehensive tax planning services, our one goal is to help clients maximize savings and minimize their tax liability each year. Our team of certified public accountants and enrolled agents is well-versed in the latest tax laws, ensuring that you capitalize on every opportunity for strategic tax optimization. We anticipate changes and keep you up to date on opportunities to potentially reduce your tax bill in the future. With a focus on precision and strategic planning, we are your trusted partner both during tax season and throughout the year. So don't wait. Reach out to us today to experience a better approach to taxes at www.capgllc.com. Again, that web address is www.capgllc.com.